BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a lot on our agenda. We're going to be talking a little later in the program about Trump's anti-environment agenda and how that turns out actually to be as well a racist agenda. Right now, however, Dr. Cedric Alexander is with us, a former law enforcement professional. He's the former president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement, Noble, was on President Barack Obama's task force on 21st century policing. He holds a doctorate in clinical psychology. He's an author of numerous books, his most recent in defense of public service, and his previous book, The New Guardians, Policing in America's Communities for the 21st Century. His website, C.L. Alexander group.com. Do I have that right, Dr. Alexander? The Twitter page is C-A-L-E-X underscore law. And of course, my Facebook page to my uh, company, of course, is Cedric Alexander group.com. Right. Something like that. I don't remember. How you doing, sir? (laughs) Close enough. I'm I'm well. So, you know, I'm reading how, you know, Camden has been overhyped in terms of reforming police. I don't know about Compton. We're hearing conversations about basically rebooting not just police departments and not just policies. You know, Trump is signing an executive order to create a national database. It seems like, you know, it's a nice little start. But but really fundamentally reexamining the whole idea behind policing in the United States, that our, our policing in this country came out of a very different place than, for example, Canada or most of Europe. Tell me about this. How do we reinvent policing in the United States? You've seen this from every side. Well, you know, every institution, and whether it's policing, law, medicine, industry, whatever institution it is, over time they all have to go through a phase of change. And I think what we're coming up on right now in American people across the board, not just in any one particular community, but I truly believe, Tom, across the board, communities are asking for something very different in their public safety officials. And I think out of the police reform that we're going to hear the president talk about, in which we're going to further hear the House on both sides talk about, in many ways, I'm in hopes is going to advance policing and also engender some new trust that many parts of our communities have lost in policing over the over a number of years. So it is a uh, challenging time uh, in this country we live in on top of COVID and 
and of course a decline in our economy and loss of lives due to COVID. But I, I am certain and I am positive as Americans we're going to get through all this together. But as it relates to police reform, every institution goes through its uh, phase of reform. And I think we're in a very good place now to implement some new policies, some new ideas, some new ways of doing business that is going to be more in line with uh, the new generations of, of people that are out there among us. Look, I'm a baby boomer, and I may see the world very different uh, than Generation Y or, 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 or millennials or so forth, but we all have to coexist on this planet, in this country together. But I think reform right now, and I tell you, someone who's been a chief twice in this country, it certainly is not going to help us to get better. It's going to mean a change and difference. Uh, and sometimes change is hard, but in the end, I think it's going to benefit the, the nation at large. What are the specific steps that, in your opinion, uh, in your experience, both as a clinical psychologist, as a, as a, as a police officer and police chief, as, as the former president of the uh, National Organization of Black Law Enforcement, um, what, what specific things do we need to do at a federal level, at state levels, and in terms of uh, reforming, rebooting, reorganizing local police departments, where do we? Start? I think one what thing. Are... I think one thing is going to have to happen. The country is going to have to regain its trust in public safety and law enforcement. There are many parts of the community that uh, absolutely still maintain that trust, uh, but we have to make every effort to make sure that every part of our American culture and a variety of different people that live within this American culture have an opportunity to feel and be part of their public safety. And for me, it begins at the beginning. I think we have to begin to ask the question, who are we hiring? Not just in terms of what their driving record or criminal history may be, but take a look at them internally. Who are they as a person? Do they have a sense of humanity? Do they have a moral compass? Uh, uh, do they respect life? <clears throat> and certainly none of us saw that demonstrated back on May 25th in Minneapolis. There was just a total absence of any type of morality or any type of compassion. So we want to make sure that the men and women that come into the profession, they have that sense of understanding that you're coming in as a guardian and not as a warrior. You're trained to fight if you need to fight, but we all also must have a sense of compassion towards people in a way that allow us to carry out our duties constitutionally and treat everyone the same. And then when you go beyond the recruitment, now we got to make sure, how are we training? Are we training our people in a way in which it's going to give them the opportunity to go out and keep themselves safe and keep the public safe the very best that they can? So we need to look at a lot of our training. And then we got to make sure we got have we, we got to have good supervision in our police departments, in our public safety. Good supervision who keeps an eye out on their personnel to make sure that they're carrying out their job constitutionally and looking for signs of stress that may be getting in their way so we can intervene and get police officers the help that they need. So those are just some of the basic fundamental things that I think me, more, than every, more than anything else that we have to be able to move towards. Yeah, uh, forgive the interruption. We have about uh, two minutes, so we're going to hit a hard break here. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on the role of police unions in all this. They seem to be the, the kind of power behind the throne, at least with regard to police violence and police corruption. 
Well, you know, here's the thing. Uh, it, it is is you have unions. You have unions in a very a lot of different industries, and you have police unions. Police unions were were not organized to uh, to 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 represent the community. They were organized to represent their constituencies, police officers. And some people would say that sometimes they go too far in trying to protect officers that are just bad officers. And there are other officers that will tell you that. But at the end of the day, whatever has been negotiated at that table with those unions, they unions have not done that on their own. They've done that in concert with management, with elected officials, but, with chiefs. But Dr. Alexander, forgive the interruption. We're going to hit a break here. Um, I'm a member of a union, SAG-AFTRA. It's an actor's union. Um, mm-hmm. Our union did not defend Harvey Weinstein and say, oh, yeah, you know, he may be a rapist, but he's one of us. I mean, it's, there isn't there a point where you say, you know, you yeah, we're a union. There but would we're not- be a point. And that's what the public is saying. The public is saying, at what point are you going to stop defending bad cops? That's the question that's being asked. But unions represent police officers, the good ones, just as though, just as well as those that may go out of bound. Now, how far they choose to defend them is up to them. But perception from the public is that they're not working in concert with their city, with their chiefs, to try to make sure that the best officers stay on that department. There are too many cases that have been reported of bad officers that city government just can't get out of those departments. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. Uh, Dr. Cedric Alexander, he is the author of most recently In Defense of Public Service, his previous book, The New Guardians, Policing in America's Communities for the 21st Century. Um, And uh, Dr. Alexander, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. This is the Tom Hartman Program. How do you think we can reinvent policing in America? Where do we begin? Looks like a big job, maybe? So we've got a new video up over at TomHartman.com. There's a really troubling concatenation of events that are happening in the United States right now. We created these concentration camps for refugees seeking asylum. This was Stephen Miller's big project. And we've got concentration camps for children, concentration camps for male adults, concentration camps for female adults. And now we've got this virus sweeping through the United States and people are starting to die in these concentration camps, which has provoked ICE to, uh, or whoever's running them, to deport hundreds of the children back to the countries that they came from without their parents, which is mind-boggling, and in many cases carrying disease. This is serious stuff, and we need to be talking about it. The new video is over at TomHartman.com. David in Seattle. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Oh, hi. Um, I love your show, and I've been listening very intently to all the discussion about racism and police brutality. And then one th- the one thing I've wanted been, the one thing I've wanted to say for a long time now is that we we we're not having a discussion about the science behind the people of color uh, or the people of no color like us that we are all Africans. We have to all remember we are all Africans from the start. And our ancestors migrated out of Africa some sixty thousand or more years ago, of course, to you know northern climates. 
and they lost the melanin in our skin. David, what does that have uh, to do with anything? It means that if you, it means that we can restructure about how we look at each other. You know, we need to bring some science into this too. Well, you know, I'm not sure we need science, uh, be, you know, beyond the fact that, you know, basically we're all human beings here. It's, in fact, science brought us a lot of this crap. I mean, the so-called scientific racism science of the 19th century, well, in the late 18th century, too, but it became, it really hit its peak at the end of the 19th century, around the time of Separate But Equal, Plessy versus Ferguson, that there were all these books being published that purported to describe the difference between African-Americans or between people people of African and European ancestry. Frederick Hoffman is the author of a whole bunch of them. He worked for the Prudential Life Insurance Company. And he, he published a book and numerous articles back in the late 1800s and early 20th century talking about how blacks eventually were going to die out because they were an inferior race. I mean, this was the science of the day. Yeah. It was embraced by Woodrow Wilson, the friggin' president of the United yeah. States in 1920 yeah, when he embraced eugenics, which included racial eugenics. I mean, we got to be very careful about how we use science, David. Why can't we just fundamentally say we are all people here, period, full stop. We don't need to go into explanations about when people this or that or the other thing. Well, that's exactly my point, you know, and I'm totally with you, and I'm not saying anything contradictory to what you're saying. What I'm saying is that I'm just reflecting again and again how important a good physical anthropology course can enlighten people. I mean, it really... I mean, it didn't just enlighten me, it made things more clear about, you know, what our origins are, and, and if we don't pay attention to, you know, how basically to strip away all that, we're exactly the same. So, yes, I'm in complete agreement with you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, because, I, you know, I have actually, in, I'm working on this book on healthcare, and it turns out in the research that I've been doing over the last few months that basically every effort to stop Americans from having a national healthcare system that has been undertaken in this country since the late 1800s was blocked by white racists who were afraid that black people would get free health care. Uh, it was the southern, southern racists, they were Democrats at the time, they called themselves conservatives, the Dixiecrats, who blocked Harry Truman in the late 1940s from a national health care program. It was the southern racists who put the 20% hole in Medicare and Medicaid, Medicare specifically, in 1967 with Lyndon Johnson. It just goes on and on and on. And, and you know, they're using this kind of pseudo-racial science and all this BS about who was where, when, and therefore is more evolved and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I think we just need to get the basics here. We're all people. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is In Defense of Public Service by Cedric L. Alexander. The subtitle is How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. This is from Chapter 1, Civil Servants and Servant Leaders. Unelected public servants are found at all levels of government, federal, state, and local. But the modern model for all is found in the federal employment systems. More specifically, it is in the concept and operation of the federal civil service system, which governs the appointment and tenure of most federal workers. Those who believe that the unelected federal bureaucracy is a deep state covertly dedicated to the overthrow of elected government see the civil service as a fundamentally unconstitutional innovation, a monster of very recent creation. Such demonizing mythology aside, the truth is that the origin of the unelected government is found in the Constitution under Section 2 of Article 2. The article defines the powers of the executive branch, and the second paragraph of its Section 2 assigns to the President the power to, quote, nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law, end quote. Thus, the president has the power to make all appointments not otherwise provided for in the Constitution. These are subject to the Senate's advice and consent unless Congress, by law, vests the appointment of such inferior officers as they may think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law or in the heads of departments, end quote. In other words, the unelected government, which I have called the fourth branch, is rooted in the Constitution through the powers that it grants either to the president or to Congress. In turn, Congress may grant the president, the courts, or heads of departments the power to hire unelected public servants. In all cases, however, the creation of the unelected government flows from the Constitution, the supreme authority and originating law of the nation. The framers of the Constitution recognized that the elected government of our republic was not in itself sufficient to govern us. It cannot alone get government done. It does not alone possess all the expertise necessary to lead, let alone manage, so vast an enterprise as a nation. If this was true in the late 18th century, it's even truer in the 21st century geopolitical and technological environment that is far more complex and that therefore requires a cadre of professionals possessing a wide variety of specialized skills, training, education, and experience. The Constitution does not call these appointments and hires a fourth branch, but that is what the Federal Service and other government workers constitute. De jure, in law, there is no fourth branch of U.S. government, yet it unquestionably exists de facto, in practice, in reality, in fact. Does the fourth branch compete with the three constitutionally established branches? No. It coexists with them as provided for in Section 2 of Article 2 of the Constitution itself. 
Those three constitutional branches are absolutely necessary to our republic, but they are not sufficient to it, as the framers acknowledged. Moreover, as I've already observed, for most people, most of the time, and in most situations, it is the member of the fourth branch who are, practically speaking, the government. They are the doers. They implement the policies created and interpreted by the three constitutional branches. What is more, although they do not decide or decree policy, they often influence it, not covertly, but by intention and design. The Constitution assigns the Senate the roles of advising on and consenting to most major presidential appointments, but members of the fourth branch do far more advising on a daily basis when it comes to providing the subject matter expertise and feedback necessary to formulate and modify policy decisions. As it turned out, following the coming into effect of the Constitution in 1789, the president, the chief executive, that is the elected official responsible for faithfully executing the laws, directly or indirectly appointed the unelected personnel whom he deemed necessary to execute government. Most of the agencies in which personnel of the unelected government served were created by the executive branch under Article II. And for a full 170 years after the Constitution was ratified, the president had the unquestioned authority to appoint and to terminate what were, in effect, employees of his branch, the executive branch. Indeed, in 1789, Congress explicitly voted, by a narrow margin, that it had no authority of approval or disapproval of presidential decisions to terminate appointees. Only those few public positions that were independent of the executive branch, which today are known as independent agencies, were not subject to presidential appointment or termination. In 1829, Andrew Johnson took, uh, Jackson excuse me, took office as the seventh president of the United States. He was regarded as the apostle of the rights of the common man, and he made it clear that he intended to usher in an area of a more highly participatory democracy. During his two terms and under his influence, many states substantially extended the still males-only franchise by dropping property requirements from the ballot, and Johnson waged a mighty battle against the Second Bank of the United States in a successful effort to loosen credit and thereby free up sources for finance. In Defense of Public Service by Cedric Alexander. Joe Madison is with us. He's the host of The Joe Madison Show, weekdays 6 to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM Channel 126. He is a civil and human rights activist. JoeMadison.com is his website. You can tweet him at Madison Sirius XM. Hey, Joe, welcome back. Hey, happy Juneteenth. And to everyone out there who doesn't know better, Donald Trump didn't make it famous. Um, I, I was yes. so in, I, no, I, no. I, I did tell you, I was, I was, I was absolutely so insulted by that. It reminds me of something I've always said: you don't get famous until white people discover you. I mean, that's that's basically what he was saying. This is that. Yeah, fact, well, and, I've been doing. And for people who don't know what you're talking about, Trump did an interview with Wall Street Journal and another one with Sean Hannity, and I think it was in the Wall Street Journal interview. He was asked about Juneteenth, and he said a black Secret Service agent had told him about it, but he's the one who made it famous. Forgive the interruption. You know, and, and you know, and well, uh, yeah, no, I mean, that, I mean, that's what's so crazy. Again, uh, cultural conditioning. I always talk about undervalue, underestimate, and marginalize. But first of all, I've been doing uh, interviews about Juneteenth for over 30 years of my career as a broadcaster and learned about it even before then. But my third ear says, oh, 
we're not famous unless somebody, in essence, discovers you and or the majority right. discovers you that's in essence what he was uh, what he was saying and um but you know he claims everything and it wasn't just that he didn't know about it remember he had to ask the secret Ser- servant agent about it because no one around him knew anything about it doesn't surprise me yeah you know it it it, it doesn't surprise me but Neither here, but happy Juneteenth, anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so the president is showing up in Tulsa. There's a, a just a, 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 an extraordinary piece in today's New York Times, uh, The Burning of Black Wall Street, revisited by Brent Staples, where he talks about um, this old guy who had lost his legs, who was uh, uh, in, in Black Wall Street, you know, in, in Greenwood, um, uh, who who moved around the city on a on a on a board with wheels on it? He was selling pencils on the street, and uh, some of the white residents lashed him to the back of a car and drove around and just ripped his body to shreds. Uh, just as one of mm-hmm. the many examples of just insane brutality. I mean, they didn't just mm-hmm. you know go in and 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 burn down Black Wall Street. They they this was this was sadistic murder. Oh, oh. Tom, Tom, uh, hey, hey, by the way, didn't we, ex- didn't we learn, didn't we experience something like that in, uh, in Texas when uh, yeah. the, uh, the three James young Berg. guys, gra- Jamesburg, grabbed a man and dragged his body uh, with a chain to pieces? Huh? Didn't we learn that? But, you know, today yeah. we had John W. Franklin on, and he gave us an amazing history of just how Greenwood, Tulsa got started. Most people don't, a lot of African-Americans ended up uh, there uh, after the Trail of Tears, some with the Trail of Tears. And then what happened, they ended up on land that most of the whites in Oklahoma deemed worthless. It was hard to uh, raise crops. uh, and, and, And guess what happened? They discovered there were there was oil under that mm. land, and that's how many of the African Americans became wealthy. And what happened was they had money, so they started building their uh, own uh, community, their banks, their restaurants, their hotels, because they weren't they were segregated. They weren't allowed to uh, stay or live or consume any of these and that's how black wall street actually got started and then of course what ended uh was the tragedy that we're now all learning about thanks to social media we can learn about it a lot quicker but also take this into consideration not one african-american was compensated for any loss matter of fact not one company, and these weren't stupid people, these are intelligent people who had gotten uh, where they were because of the wealth from petroleum. Um, they, their insurance companies, and they were insured, their insurance companies would not settle any claim. And on t- on t- to this very day, none of the survivors or descend- descendants of the survivors uh, have uh, gotten one bit of compensation. The best that could happen uh, would be uh, a plaque or two that they might see. 
The other thing that was uh, fascinating from what Dr. Franklin uh, told us, who, by the way, there is an exhibit once the African American Museum, the Smithsonian, opens up again, I think on the third floor there, I hope people will take the opportunity to go and, and see that. These folk were not allowed to rebuild the city unless they use non-combustible uh, uh, material. Uh, so they actually had to go out there and damn near make bricks by hand in order to mm. rebuild that, uh, that community. So this story goes a lot deeper, uh, and I would end by telling you that there's also some concern that uh, there may be uh, mass graves that have not been uncovered. This, this thing of 300 people were killed. Well, um, I know for a fact that the Red Cross came in to help and they documented that there were over 600 people. There is now the possibility that there may be mass graves that have yet to be uncovered. So this is, this is just a continuation of what was in the New York Times. And once again, this argument, I don't know where it'll go. Senator Cohen is now talking about, oh, we should make it a national holiday. Well, there was a medical MD, Dr. Myers, who would come on my show for years, and he wanted to make Juneteenth a national holiday. But the Tulsa thing is a tragic beyond what happened to individuals. But the sad thing is we've seen it over and over again. This goes to, and, and I hope I can say this, lynching. Tulsa mm -hmm. was a lynching. Now understand, yep. we have an listen. We have an anti-lynching bill right now, stalled in the United States Senate. It's called the Emmett Till bill. We have an anti-lynching bill, and one man, one senator from Kentucky, Rand Paul, is stopping it. I am begging and asking your listeners to do it. My listeners and others, and 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 all of us who are Stephanie Miller, I, you know, all of us. Pass that anti-lynching bill. Damn it, pass that anti-lynching bill. Just don't make yeah. the Juneteenth a holiday. Uh, don't don't just go to Tulsa and have a speech. Do something meaningful. Amen. The great Joe Madison. Joe, always great having you with us. Thanks so much. Anytime. Great talking with you. Channel 126, Sirius XM, every morning, 6 to 10 a.m. is the Tom Hartman Program. Joe is the best. One of the best talk show hosts in America. Uh, one of the top 10 rated talk show hosts in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
Mike in Lameda, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, just uh, noted something on Monday that occurred, a landmark which uh, aligns Trump ever more closely with Adolf Hitler, but I haven't heard it mentioned anywhere except the Brad blog, and that is based on the TrumpDeathClock.com, which is a an admittedly very conservative tally of the number of needless deaths that have occurred because of Trump's dithering and misfeasance and malfeasance. And Monday morning, the total exceeded 70,000 and a half, which is 25% as many Americans as were killed by Adolf Hitler. But that was over four years for Hitler. So in five months, Trump four is months on for track. Trump. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm considering five months, but uh, just for computational ease. But by November, by my calculations, he'll be on track to reach the 50% mark of Hitler. And I pray to God he's not around to get the total up higher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we need to be doing a lot of praying, Mike. But more than that, we need to be voting. <laughs> we need to make sure we're registered to vote and, yeah, get out there. Hey. Mike, thank you for the call. Spot on. David in Anaheim, California. Hey, David, what's up? Hello. I'm an MD, PhD, a professor of medicine at University of California, medical, Irvine Medical School. I also attended law school, and I went to prep school with Mr. Trump, but that's not the reason I'm calling. I've spoken to several judges that are patients, and they agree with me that the likelihood of the Minneapolis policeman being tried in Minneapolis is unlikely since it's 85% white, 15% black. They will get a change of venue, and there is no way that a white jury in rural Minnesota will convict a policeman. It'll be a mistrial, and they will wind up copying a plea. And if you want to hear my anecdotes about Trump, I can tell you them, but he was expelled from our prep school from cheating until Roy Cohen came in, contributed a great deal of money, built our school a gym, and suddenly he was allowed to transfer to New York Military Academy, which is basically where rich prep school kids go when they're tossed out of quality prep schools. Wow, what, what school was that that you were in with Trump, and what was he like? The Chiquiu Forest School, located on Union Turnpike in Forest Hills, New York. Mm-hmm. And what was he like as a student and as a person, did you know? All I can say is nobody missed him when he was gone, although we all lived together in Jamaica State in Queens. Didn't uh, his dad own was, that, Jamaica uh, State? Well, Jamaica State is a large area. He just had oh, a large home there. I see. Okay. Yeah, fascinating but I'm stuff. Curious, yes. I'm curious what other people think about the likelihood of these officers getting any sort of trial. You know, I'll tell you what I think. I think prior to the last six weeks, that probably would have been exactly the scenario that would have played out. I'm very uh, skeptical that that's how things are going to play out going forward. I, I think that America has really changed. But, you know, I'm an optimist. We'll see. I, I may well be wrong. David, thank you for the call, and thanks for the anecdote. That's fascinating. Welcome to the Tom Hartman Book Club, Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson, who was a guest on our program a while back. Uh, this is from page 86. One of the great privileges of whiteness 
is not to see color, not to see race, and not to pay a price for ignoring it, except, of course, when you're called on it. But even then, the price pales quite literally in comparison to the high-priced black folk pay for being black. We pay a price, too, for not even being able to derive recognition and financial reward for the styles that make the world want to be black so bad that they don't mind looking like us as long as they never, ever have to be us. If the appropriators can freely rip off our culture with no consequences, those who revise racial history, the fourth stage of white racial grief, are even less accountable for their deeds. The way of the racial revisionist when it comes to black life and history is simply to rewrite it. Their motto is, it didn't happen that way. There's a flood of writing that tells us that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, but about an effort to defend states' rights. But, my friend... You've got to put yourself in our place and see the absurdity of such a claim. Defend the rights of states to do what? To enslave blacks. But even here, the irresistible logic of whiteness that is irresistible to whites themselves and to all of us who are subjected to white whim springs into full action. White American history is so powerful that even when it loses, it wins, at least in skirmishes within whiteness itself. From the right wing, there is the belief that the Civil War was fought over the ability of individual states to beat back a federal government out to impose its will. From the left wing, there's the belief that the Civil War was a conflict between the planter class and the proletariat. In each case, race as the main reason for the war is skillfully rewritten, or really written out. Slavery is rewritten too. Some white Christian apologists contend that black folk needed slavery to save their souls or to rescue their cultures. A contemporary twist on this argument radiates in thinkers like Dinesh D'Souza, who claims that American blacks brought here through slavery are now doing far better than their African kin. Some white critics argue that since blacks sold other blacks into slavery, bondage was a black man's problem, not a white man's burden. But revisionists would much rather describe the dehumanization of black folk as little more than a commercial transaction. It's another way of washing their hands of racial responsibility. The effort to rewrite history surfaces in how Malcolm X is treated in the mainstream. It hardly seems likely that the culture he fought with all his heart could be depended on to grasp his true meaning. Malcolm is often read as an apostle of violence, as a frightful figure, consumed by destructive rage. But the truth is far more complex, and Malcolm was far more complicated. But isn't the autobiography of Malcolm X so enduringly appealing because it shows Malcolm giving up hatred as a means to racial justice? Now, Malcolm X believed in the liberation of black folk from the mental and psychological chains of white supremacy. He was not committed to nonviolence as a way of life or as a method of social strategy. He believed that such a commitment prevents the full realization of black emancipation. Yet he was not personally violent. As Ossie Davis says in his eulogy, responding to the claim that Malcolm preached hate and was a fanatic and a racist, quote, Did you even talk to Brother Malcolm? Was he ever himself associated with violence or any public disturbance? End quote. The rage that flowed in Malcolm's veins was the rage against a force of whiteness that aimed to wash its black kin from the face of the earth. The urge to rewrite black history occasionally gives way to the final stage of white racial grief, which is simply, when it comes to race, dilute it. That is to argue that black stuff doesn't just plague black folk. To summarize, bad stuff happens to everyone. This argument surfaced in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and that storm certainly hit black folk, but it hit white folk too. This is the sordid version of reverse American exceptionalism. 
It is the same Me Too impulse that flares in the bitter battle against affirmative action. Beloved, I can't help but notice that affirmative action is the bee in so many of your bonnets. You look around in your classrooms and you think every black person is there because they got an unfair shake from the system. You look at your job and you think that your black coworker got an unjust nod of approval from the powers that be. You never stop to think how the history of whiteness in America is one long scroll of affirmative action. You never stop to think that Babe Ruth never had to play the greatest players of his generation, just the greatest white players. You never stop to think that most of our presidents never rose to the top because they bested the competition, only just the white competition. White privilege is a self-selecting tool that keeps you from having to compete with the best. The history of white folk gaining access to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale is the history of white folk deciding ahead of the game that you are superior. You argue that slots in school should be reserved for your kin because, after all, they are smarter, more disciplined, better suited, and more deserving than inferior blacks. From Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson. Welcome back. There are uh, some things I wanted to talk about. One thing, and thanks to Joe for his perspective and and the information that he's sharing with us. I've got a whole pile of stuff here, which I will be getting to as we go through the day. But just one little story I wanted to tell you, and then one data point associated with it. I'm an old ham radio operator. I grew up. I was a you know a science geek as a kid, and and when I was 13, I got my uh, my amateur radio novice uh, license, and when I was 14, I got my general ticket. WA8MWL. And in Morse code, in fact, the first year that I was a ham, the only way I could talk to anybody else, and I talked to people all over the world, was using Morse code. And the way you say goodbye in Morse code is da da di 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 da da, right? Which is 73, 73. You say 73s. And in fact, when ham radio operators meet in person, they'll say 73s instead of see you later. If you were sending a kiss, you'd say 86. You know, if you're talking to somebody who's a, a close friend or intimate or whatever. So we use numbers for communicating meaning. 88 is the number that you frequently see on Nazi message boards. Just like ham operators, if you go to, if you visit ham radio message boards, you will see that they will post a message and at the very end they'll say 73's Tom or 73's Bill, right? 73 is a way of saying, you know, talk to you later or, you know, goodbye or whatever. On the Nazi boards, what you'll see is 88. 88 has a very, very specific meaning to America's neo-Nazis. The eighth letter of the alphabet is H. And so if you have two H's, HH or 88, it stands for Heil Hitler. And this is not some obscure thing that I'm sharing with you. This is like widespread. So I'm starting to think that we are being trolled by actual neo-Nazis inside the Donald Trump for president campaign. Because they posted an ad over on Facebook. Now, when they, when they buy these ads on Facebook, or they create different versions of the ads and post them on Facebook, you know, there's like over a thousand versions 
of an ad that uh, Trump posted on Facebook a, a month or so ago, just telling n- naked lies about Joe Biden. Joe Biden protested to Facebook. You know, there's this whole movement asking Facebook to t- take these ads down. Mark Zuckerberg is now saying, well, you know, you can turn off political ads if you want, or you will be able to. But basically they said, screw you. You know, we're with the Trump campaign. So then this ad went up a couple days ago with this Nazi iconography on it. Everybody in the concentration camps and later in the death camps had to wear a badge, a little piece of cloth on their coats so that the guards would immediately know who they were and why they were there. And they were mostly upside down triangles. If it was pink, it meant you were gay. If it was red, it meant you were a communist, a socialist, a union organizer, or somebody who generally opposed fascism. You opposed the, uh, the Hitler regime. You with me so far? So this is the Nazis, the Heil Hitler people, and they made people wear upside down red triangles. So the, the Trump campaign posts an ad referring to Antifa, which, you know, isn't an organization. It's like, it's like saying I'm Antifa is like saying I'm conservative. Antifa is short for anti-fascist. It means you're opposed to fascism. So the Trump administration, or the Trump campaign, placed this ad arguing that Antifa had a logo and that they're, I mean, they don't say this. This is their excuse after the fact. But it had this upside down red triangle, which is what the Nazis made prisoners who were people who opposed the Nazis, politically opposed them. Trade unionists, socialists, liberals, they had to wear this upside down red triangle. So the Trump campaign bought, you know, space for this ad on Facebook, and they produced 88 versions of it. So the headline, go over and look at Drudge right now, you'll see it. The headline is, Facebook removes 88 Trump ads because of Nazi iconography. I don't think this is a coincidence. I think whoever the Nazis are inside the Trump campaign are shouting out to all the other Nazis and white supremacists out there. Just like, you know, when Brett Kavanaugh was testifying before the Senate, he had that woman behind him flashing the white power symbol over and over and over again. These things are not accidental. And, you know, we see cops with the white power symbol all the time. I hear it. and, And frankly, I think I've seen Donald Trump do it. Although, you know, you could say maybe he's just saying, okay, who knows? Am I being, like, over the top here? We'll pick up your calls after this. Talk media for the sane left among us. I think we're a growing number. I really do. We'll be right back. Coming up on the science revolution, biodiversity is dying as Trump opens 5,000 square miles of the ocean to the free market. Dr. Lauren Waller joins us to discuss how and why native plants can sequester carbon better and longer. Plus, Jim Adams from the Alaska National Parks Conservation Association is here on why Trump is allowing hunters to kill bear cubs in their dens. Are big game hunters like Don Jr. gleefully heading to Alaska to kill baby animals again? And cultural economist Dr. Jacoba Williams talks about how studies show black deaths at the hands of law enforcement are linked to historical lynchings. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever you find great podcasts.
Tom Harbin here with you. Donald Trump is uh, signing a an executive order of sorts. The essence of it basically is he's uh, asking Congress to do something. I mean, the, uh, as CNN reports, the order mainly leans on lawmakers to do the heavy lifting. So Trump will get credit for saying, oh, we're doing this and we're doing that, when in fact his executive order is saying, hey, Congress, would you please do this? Would you please do that? And we're going to do this little small thing here over in the Department of Justice that we can handle. Um, you know, it's, it's the triumph of style over substance. And I think it's frankly obscene. On MSNBC, on Rachel Maddow's show, she, was, she had her producer, Steve Bannon, on. We've got to get Steve on this program. He's got a new book out. And the allegation, essentially, I think it's called Imposters. And basically what he's saying in this book is that for at least the last decade, and not having read the book, I'm just going off his interview, um, for at least the de- last decade, I would say since the 1980s, and I'll get to that in just a second, the Republican Party has ceased to be a party of principles. There are no political principles there. And therefore has become entirely transactional. It's all about what do we do today that will help advance our own wealth and power. We're now, by, by the way, hearing that four members of Congress have gotten millions of dollars out of that $500 billion that Steve Mnuchin is passing out and refusing to tell anybody who it went to. But we don't know beyond this. There's you know, four who have been outed. Uh, one of the four gave the money back. That was a Democrat. <laughs> but, or actually the husband of a Democrat. A woman who's a Democratic member of Congress. But the, you know, the uh, two Republicans, hey, bring the cash. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, the party has no core. Similarly, Donald Trump has no core. You, you know, what are Donald Trump's principles? Well, outside of being a white nationalist or a white, white supremacist, a racist, I don't think Donald Trump has any core principles. It's, uh, you know, he, he, the, the, you can sum him up with, you know, racism and me, me, me. You know, it's all anything that's going to help him and his kids. Cool. Anything else? Eh, not so much. And, and when I say, and his kids, I'm not sure it even means and his kids. I mean, look at what he did to his daughter, Tiffany. You know, cutting her mom, you know, out, essentially, from most of the Trump wealth. Marla Maples. But, you know, Louise, my wife, Louise, who's been my partner in business here in, in the f- nearly 50 years we've been married, every company we've started... Louise has gone out of her way to, to construct essentially a mission statement for the company. I mean, this is something that we do as we're putting together the idea for a company. Because she's very clear about it and has said this over and over for years. If you don't have a vision, you either work for vision or you work for money. You either work for something, you either work towards something or you work to, you know, to pay the bills. And there's nothing wrong with working to pay the bills. Probably 80% of Americans who have a job are working to pay the bills. And there's that lucky 20% of Americans, and maybe it's not even that many, who have a job where they're actually proud of their job. They feel like their job is accomplishing something positive in the world. It's got, you know, yeah, they may have some disagreements with how things get done, but broadly speaking, we're producing a net positive for the earth, for the world, for humanity. There's a small percentage of people you know, who in their jobs feel that way. And that's a, that's a great thing. That's, you know, a wonderful thing. 
But for somebody in public service, somebody who has been elected to serve and lead the people, to not have a vision statement, to not be a person who is working toward a specific goal, a more just society, a world that works for all, the survival of life on earth, to not have some sense of mission is to betray this country. And that's what the Republican Party and Donald Trump have been doing for a long, long time. And, and I said you know, earlier, the, ever since the 1980s, I think that when the Reagan revolution started, the first few years of the Reagan presidency, you had these conservatives who for a decade, two decades, since a, really three, I guess, since the 1950s, 1957, uh, Mont Pillar and Society and, and Ludwig von Mises and, and Frederick Hayek, Frederick Hayek, and, and, and then uh, you know, throughout the late 50s and early 60s, uh, Milton Friedman, they had these ideas that if you just got rid of government and let the marketplace regulate everything, the magical, invisible hand would solve all our problems. There were a lot of these guys who actually believed this. Barry Goldwater actually believed this. Reagan comes into office and they actually put some of these practices into, into effect and discover that they don't work. They make things worse. They exacerbate problems. And I believe that was the point at which the Republican Party lost its soul and Republican politicians ever since the 1980s have just been out for money and power, whatever they can smash and grab. When do you think it started? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Do you think you think I'm right that the Republican Party actually once had principles, bizarre as they were, and no longer does? Or do they have something I'm missing here? It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is page 34. Prior to this, we've set up how conservatives saw the 60s as a time of great social chaos and the rise of Ralph Nader and Rachel Carlson and the whole consumer and environmental movements as threats to profitability and business, and they had to do something about it. So page 34. Lewis F. Powell Jr. was just sitting down to breakfast in his suite at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City when he received a call from the White House. The year was 1971, more than 40 years since the last great crash. The 60s had ended and the Vietnam War had destroyed the Democratic Party, leaving Richard Nixon as President of the United States. And Nixon needed a favor. A thin, ascetic man with wispy hair and fragile features, Lewis Powell had ancestral roots in America's first European settlement, Jamestown, and a lifetime of participation in the law. He deeply loved his Richmond, Virginia home and the law practice he had there, which mostly consisted of defending corporate interests and wealthy Southern white men. He walked comfortably, often in crepe-soled shoes, dressed as a Southern gentleman, and spoke so softly that people sometimes leaned forward to listen. But when he spoke, his words were precise, well-measured, and carefully considered. He was one of the most brilliant jurists of his day, And so it's no surprise that the Nixon White House was considering him for a seat on the Supreme Court, a job he turned down at first. But then when Nixon called him again at the Waldorf Astoria, he reluctantly accepted. As a Supreme Court justice, Lewis Powell was very much the moderate, and his legacy on the high court would reflect his balanced and authentic interpretation of the rule of law in America. 
However, just a few months before he was nominated by Nixon, Powell had written a memo to his good friend Eugene Sindor Jr., the director of the United States Chamber of Commerce at the time. And Powell's most indelible mark on our nation was not to be his 15-year tenure as a Supreme Court justice, but instead that memo, which served as a declaration of war, a war by the economic royalists against both democracy and what they saw as an overgrown middle class. It would be a final war, a bella omnium contra omnis, against everything the New Deal and the Great Society had accomplished. It wasn't until September 1972, 10 months after the Senate confirmed Powell, that the public first found out about the Powell memo. The actual document had the word confidential stamped on it, a sign that Powell himself hoped it would never see daylight outside of the rarefied circles of his rich friends. By then, however, it had already found its way to the desks of CEOs all across the nation and was, with millions in corporate and billionaire money, already being turned into real actions, policies, and institutions. During its investigation into Powell as part of the nomination process, the FBI never found the memo, but investigative journalist Jack Anderson did, and he exposed it in a September 28, 1972 column titled, Powell's Lessons to Business Aired. Anderson wrote, shortly before his appointment to the Supreme Court, Justice Lewis F. Powell Jr. urged business leaders in a confidential memo to use the courts as a social, economic, and political instrument. Pointing out that the memo wasn't discovered until after Powell was confirmed by the Senate, Anderson wrote, Senators never got a chance to ask Powell whether he might use his position on the Supreme Court to put his ideas into practice and to influence the court on behalf of business interests. This was an explosive charge being leveled at the nation's rookie Supreme Court justice, a man entrusted with interpreting our nation's laws with absolute impartiality. But Jack Anderson was no stranger to taking on American authority and no stranger to the consequences of his journalism. He'd exposed scandals from the Truman, Eisenhower, Nixon, and later the Reagan administrations. He was a true investigative journalist. In his report on the memo, Anderson wrote, Powell recommended a militant political action program ranging from the courts to the campuses. Powell's memo was both a direct response to Roosevelt's battle cry decades earlier and a response to the tumult of the 1960s. He wrote, quote, no thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack, end quote. When Sindor and the chamber received the Powell memo, corporations were growing tired of their second-class status in America. Even though the previous 40 years had been a time of great growth and strength for the American economy and America's middle-class workers, and a time of sure and steady increases in profits for corporations, CEOs felt something was missing. If they could only find a way to wiggle back into the people's minds, who were just beginning to forget the royalists' previous exploits in the 1920s that had crashed our economy, then they could get their tax cuts back. They could trash the burdensome regulations that were keeping the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the food we eat safe. And the banksters among them could inflate another massive economic bubble to make themselves all mind-bogglingly rich. It could, if done right, be a return to the roaring 20s. But how could they do this? How could they convince Americans to take another shot at what was widely considered a dangerous free market ideology and economic framework and that Americans once knew preceded every great crash in war. But Lewis Powell had an answer, and he reached out to the Chamber of Commerce, the hub of corporate power in America, with a strategy. As Powell wrote, strength lies in organization, in careful long-range planning and implementation, in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years, in the scale of financing available only through joint effort, and in the political power available only through unified action and national organizations. Thus, Powell said, the role of the National Chamber of Commerce is therefore vital. The crash of 2016.
Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky, the folks who helped bring this show to you and all the radio and television stations and networks that carry this program. Thank you all, and thank you particularly for participating in our program and for calling. And don't forget, democracy needs you. Get out, get active, tag your it. Be good to yourself and others. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 